This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pograin Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Gen Con. Gen Con. And Gen Con. Yet also... Gen Con! Um... You are cute. You are cunning. You are fierce. Oh, thanks, Robin. No, I'm talking about your stats and magical kitties save the day from our friends at Atlas Games. Magical kitties save the day is a role-playing game for players of all ages. It's on Kickstarter now. And magical kitties save the day. You need to use your magical powers to solve problems and save the day. It's got everything we love in a role-playing game. Plus, magical kitties, robots. And hyper-intelligent raccoons. Teach your kids how to role-play. Create a party of magical kitties. Use your powers and... Save the day! It's on Kickstarter until August 15th. Search for it today or follow the link in the show notes. So, hey, Ken. Are you as worn out as I am? I sure am, Robin, for exactly the same reason. Yes, uh, we were at Gen Con. Uh, so, the last week, you heard the episode we recorded when we were all bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, or at least quasi, because we already had some meetings and stuff. But right. l- let's say quasi-bushy-tailed for the purposes yes. of this discussion. Tails somewhere in the broad median of bushing. Yes. Uh, so, now we are back on our regular Tuesday recording date in our regular... Uh, homes in the best uh, cities in the world, and uh, we are still kind of brain-tired. Yesterday was travel day. I got 10 hours of sleep, but it feels like I need another 10 hours of sleep. But uh, regular listeners, uh, you may be used to this drill. Um, I don't feel my voice is quite as blown out this year as other years, but uh, but the brain powering I think my voice is probably it. right around as blown out. Yes. Uh, the, the, the brain powering the voice is certainly as uh, blown out. Oh, yeah, so that's, that's mush. All, that's just a ball of mush. Yes. Uh, so the first thing we want to say in this extended all-episode gaming hut is to thank all of our beloved Patreon backers who uh, came to our live event or swung by the booth. Uh, the rest of the year, I'm aware how much people like the show, and but really, it's at Gen Con that I get to talk to people and feel that, look, this crazy talking in the microphone, it goes out and gets received and, and, uh, uh, people are digging it and they come by and digging it. And that's what keeps us going, isn't it, Ken? Yeah. I mean, that and, uh, the generous support of our beloved Patreon backers. But in addition to their support, they also give us their love. And that is really great. I mean, someone comes up and says, I listen to you every day or every Friday. You've made our, our games better. Um, you've introduced me to weird stuff that I wouldn't have thought of, whether that be a food item or a author or a strange concept. Um, that's literally the point of the show is to take the, uh, giant knurled balls of knowledge from our heads and shave them into pleasing shapes and offer them to you, our beloved listeners. And then when you take them into your own homes and put them on your knickknack shelf or use them in your games, we're super happy to know that that's happening because shouting into the audience void might be good for some. Uh, and of course, Rowan and I both do have Twitter accounts, so obviously we're not averse to that, but it's nicer when people come back and say, gosh, that was really cool. Thanks a lot for telling me about, uh, that cool idea. 
And that's just really nice. And uh, at least one beloved Patreon backer uh, reminded me of some housekeeping that I uh, meant to get to uh, for a while now, which is if you are pledging at the shout-out level, which is $5 or above, and have not heard yourself shouted out and are wondering what's happening, almost undoubtedly, either... Uh, you did not see my message uh, asking to confirm that you wish to be shouted out because, of course, not everybody does. I have to uh, check. Our, our numerous that. stealth backers, yeah, many of whom are America's espionage agents overseas, yes, uh, who listen to us as a connection to their homeland, but who can't break their cover. Exactly. So other people just uh, think their name sounds weird. So the failure points are either. Uh, I failed to send you a message asking for confirmation or you didn't see it and didn't confirm. Uh, so if you uh, have not been shouted out to and you know that you ought to be shouted out to and desire this, hit me up with a message on Patreon and I will add you to the magic spreadsheet uh, that lists uh, all of the love of our uh, uh, Patreon backers. Um, so, Ken, uh, d- do we want to start with a, a big old uh, takeaway other than, oh gosh, what a giant show full of uh, event and moment and sturm and drang and thunder and filk and all, all that? I mean, I I think that this is kind of one of those transitional years where things are about like they were last year. It's not like the years where we began to suddenly notice that there was uh, the teens were back in it and the tweens even were showing up in their gaggles and their tribes and their uh, khaki shorts and their cool, ironic t-shirts. But, uh, and I think we noticed that a few years back and that seemed that, that trend continues apace. It's not like 93 when suddenly card games were everywhere or 91 when, uh, Vampire the Masquerade brought, uh, drama people and ladies into the hallowed halls of Gen Con, much to Gen Con's great improvement thereafter. Uh, but I think that we are beginning to see the, uh, what a, Bigger and bigger and bigger presence of streaming is going to look like in the future, not just that the demographics are going to keep shifting uh, young and diverse, but also that I think people are going to be paying attention to streaming events and that streaming is going to play an ever bigger part on the show floor. I mean, the good guys at Board Game Geek always do their little streaming interviews and other uh, panels are beginning to get, to get streamed. But uh, Critical Role, for example... I think it was not even two years ago that you and I were still baffled that the thing existed. And now we respond, oh, yeah, of course they're selling out an auditorium. Why wouldn't they? And now they're beginning to have a a role as, as they sort of branch out and, and connect to the rest of the Gen Con family. And the Gen Con family grows to include them, that they're becoming part of the show in the same way that, say, you know, Fantasy Flight is part of the show, that it's a, a beloved core thing that you're always happy to see, even if you're not a Fantasy Flight gamer, and it's part of your sort of social world um, as you go through through Gen Con. So I think that we're seeing, you know, uh, 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 for example, some of the alpha streamers were at the Diana Jones Awards, and it was lovely to see them there, uh, not just to give the Diana Jones Award on, but also just to be part of the community and part of the industry. And that's terrific. And I think that kind of cross fertilization is only good for everybody. So there are some things that are different, not epic making, uh, uh different, but the attendance uh, was way up in terms of unique attendees. And here we get into the crazy world of turnstile statistics, <laughs> but this just year the thing were... to think about after 11 days of breaking your head. Right. Okay. So for, for the listeners at home, there are unique attendees, and then there are turnstiles. And often a convention will quote the turnstiles because that allows them to quote an attendance figure that wraps the same person in multiple days. Uh, so it's one person, but they come four days. Guess what? That's four turnstiles. 
Um, not that there are actually turnstiles to go through at Gen Con. Uh, but this year, the uh, uniques were up about 12%. And uh, this is, uh, that's a big number. Mm-hmm. So there's almost 70,000 unique attendees. Uh, last year uh, it was uh, 61,000 and change. And I could kind of see this on the floor because for the first time I was seeing a lot of Sunday badges um, and that I think can goes to your whole streaming point where additionally, you know, people, there are now more local gamers in the indie area where, you know, local is a subset of how far people are willing to drive in the Midwest. Um, and so uh, we're getting more new people and by sort of definition, people with a one day badge are almost invariably from the local area and coming on in without uh, booking a hotel room. Although I understand that some people do that, but most people going to the trouble to, uh, to stay in a hotel are also uh, getting a four day badge. So well, they're at least a Saturday and a Sunday. Uh, right. And so for example, Sunday is often kind of a lull. Uh, people are getting their last few games in. Uh, and so it might not be a lull elsewhere, but in the, Exhibit Hall, it's often kind of slow, but it was uh, pretty good this year because there were lots of people coming in, and that was their one day to see Gen Con was uh, on, the, on the floor there. Um, and they raised $35,000 at the uh, charity auction. We'll hear a bit more about that uh, in a future interview. But uh, definitely the show continues to grow, and uh, it's sort of interesting uh, how... Traffic flow apparently affects how much the show could go. If people could be spread out a bit more, uh, it could accommodate a lot more people. But there's a certain kind of bottlenecks where people tend to gather at certain times. And uh, that's, uh, uh, from what I understand, a big uh, challenge. Um, so uh, do we move on to the awards or do you have anything else you'd like to uh, go into in terms of the sort of overall size and success of the show this year as you know uh the uh i am a big proponent of gen con moving to chicago but it doesn't sound like it's going to uh I, we heard that they are locked in for i think that was it another five years or another four years more years uh anyway and that uh like you said we learned uh that the problem is not crowding it is uh choke points and so they have to sort of start rejiggering the the event to provide more attractions than just the exhibit hall at 10 in the morning on Thursday so that they don't bring the convention center down. And while I am, uh, I'm happy to have more people, uh, at Gen Con, I am excited to find out what kind of new event is going to draw off a substantial fraction of Gen Con attendees, because that does mean that there's going to have to be some creative thinking and some decisions made about what else the show is. I mean, Disneyland doesn't have a choke point except for when they have, Star Wars land is just new, so they're probably dealing with all kinds of choke points there. But by and large, you go to Disneyland, there's a million things to see. At Gen Con, uh, at the very beginning of it, the dealer's always kind of the focus. And as a, as a writer, I selfishly like that. But it's going to be interesting because Gen Con may have to start shifting even further. It's been a long time since you or I or anyone even Peter uh, knew everything that was happening at Gen Con or could even be everywhere at Gen Con. Um, now it's, it's going to be interesting to see that maybe we'll be having 
two or even three Gen Cons happening in parallel. And, uh, which Gen Con you go to is going to depend on your mood and what your, what your crew wants to do. So we're sort of, like I say, where this is a transitional year. We're at the cusp of something, something big and new happening. Yeah. For, for example, and, uh, this is me spitballing, not something I've heard is going to happen. Uh, I can envision a time when they might, uh, have the hall of exclusives where if you're going to get the big new collector's thing that is, uh, on sale, uh, first thing in the exhibit hall each day, that that might actually be somewhere else that Gen Con might subsidize, uh, those companies that do that. And they're certainly the big companies, uh, to, uh, create, you know, go and get your wristband for the special thing over here at the JW Marriott or, you know, <laughs> at the Lucas Oil Stadium, uh, and then trade it in at your leisure so that, uh, and you would have less of a stampede, uh, into the hall at the beginning, but stampedes are bad from crowd control of perspectives. Yes. It's, it's the way that you get bad headlines again. Yes. You don't want those. It's the way that fire marshals uh, get, uh, as they say, irked. Right. In fire marshal lingo. Uh, so yeah, I guess the awards is, is the next step. Um, and of course we begin as we always begin with the premier crew of the awards, the finest of the awards, the peak of the awards, the Diana Jones awards. And this year, as I alluded, the streaming people arrived to transfer their ownership, their custodianship of the coveted Diana Jones Perspex pyramid to the worthy winner, friend of the show, Alex Roberts for her game Starcrossed, uh, which won the Diana Jones Award this year. Alex sadly and tragically could not be with us because she was uh, in an accident. However, uh, her publisher, Steve uh, Segetti, accepted the award on her behalf, and it is even now being transferred across international borders, much no doubt to the confusion of all involved. Uh, to be it's, presented it's the to the Diana Jones Awards, a third trip to Canada, or as we say here, a hat trick. A hat trick. And one hopes that it will use its healing pyramid powers on uh, the lovely and talented Alex and that she will return, not just to the fold of great game design, which she already has been with For the Queen and whatever else she's working on right now, but also to Gen Con to grace us with her delightful presence. Uh, and the Diana Jones Awards party was in a new location, a new undisclosed location that was vastly better than the last undisclosed location, was it not, Robin? Uh, yes. Uh, I don't know anything about any shadowy cabals, but, uh, if I did, one of their chief frustrations for many, many years, uh, has been, uh, finding a way to give out the awards in an environment where people are actually paying attention instead of just slurping down the drink tickets and schmoozing at the top of their lungs. And I think in part, uh, due to the, Location and in large part due to the huge, uh, groundswell of people who wanted the award to be given to the person who wound up getting it, people were actually quiet and respectful, uh, and you could hear the award, uh, and that is great. And also a, uh, not a foregone conclusion. I can't remember a year when there's so many people who palpably wanted, uh, someone to win. Oh, I can. <laughs> but delicacy forbids me to discuss that further. Right. Um, but <laughs> the, the desire for that win was there. And traditionally, the Dinah Jones Awards are uh, a heartbreaker. Uh, they uh, can often uh, come out in, in surprising ways, in part due to just sort of the apples and oranges uh, nature of it. It's more, it's unlike the Ennies, which we'll get to. It's like a, a film festival jury. And uh, therefore, uh, the uh, results can be surprising. But unlike a film festival jury, there's only one award. Right. Uh, and that makes it both uh, prestigious and uh, heartbreaking. Those two things 
are connected to each other. But fortunately, there was no riot this year because the right. overwhelming favorite uh, was the one that the shadowy cabal, uh, in its collective decision-making and voting, uh, wound up coming up on top. And I think before we talk about more awards, I think we should award our next sponsor a listen to an exciting commercial. In the 1960s, the CIA hunted Yeti in Tibet, built aircraft that touched the edge of space, and experimented on mind control. But there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the FBI infiltrated occult movements, wiretapped congressmen, and winked at the mafia. Yeah, but there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the Marines invaded Cambodia, the Navy listened to the Pacific Deeps, and the Air Force covered up UFOs. Oh boy, is there more to that story. Those stories all touch the surface of the secret world, the poisonous, unnatural world of the Cthulhu mythos. A government program named Majestic tries to weaponize the unnatural. A government program named Delta Green tries to destroy the unnatural. In the fall of Delta Green, you play the agents of Delta Green, caught between your oath to America and your duty to humanity, caught between a world on fire and the icy cold of other dimensions. Written by Kenneth Height, The Fall of Delta Green adapts Arc Dream Publishing's Delta Green, the role-playing game, to the award-winning gumshoe engine. The Fall of Delta Green is a standalone game of standing alone against inevitable destruction. Delta Green falls in 1970. The world falls shortly thereafter. The Fall of Delta Green. Grab it in your store or from the Pelgrane Press website. It's Delta Green. It's the 1960s. In Gumshoe, what are you waiting for? The end of the world? So we're back uh, to talk about the Ennies. Among the other awards uh, are the IGDN Awards and our Pelgrane uh, Honcho Cat Tobin uh, took part in those and presenting them. And uh, uh, they have a few enough awards that we can just list them out. Uh, the most innovative went to Verdure. Best Art went to Bluebeard's Bride, Book of Runes. Best Rules went to Good Society, a Jane Austen RPG. Best Setting, The Way of Pucona. And Game of the Year went to Dialect, a game about language and how it dies. Uh, Ken, do any, any of those stick out to you as particularly uh, noteworthy? My uh, my friend, John Harness, uh, who is also my future putative co-author on uh, Hellenistica and also a uh, massive presence at the Pograin booth this year is a big fan of dialect because he is a language buff and dialect is an excellent game. And I'm super glad that it did win the IDGN award, although that was a strong category if I remember correctly. And of course I backed the uh, Jane Austen game because Jane Austen and game. Exactly. Uh, so why wouldn't I? Um, so I was glad to see Good Society uh, get best rules. So, though I mean, I'm sure all the games are great, but it is there is a time once when I knew all the indie games out there, and that time was 2009. It's <laughs> like a, it's like knowing all the music. Right, the field is so uh, broad and has so many uh, amazing uh, creators working in it that uh, you can't know everything. There isn't a single game of the year, and uh, the uh, ability to uh, spot what's going on is uh, uh, rightly uh, too big for any one person or any one podcast. Uh, but the big popular awards uh, are the Ennies. Uh, they uh, 
despite some concerns uh, last year about uh, things sort of getting wobbly around the edges a little, it is still the, uh, I think, most prestigious set of uh, role-playing and role-playing related awards. And that it remains because the publishers have no control over the rules right. or the structure. Because it is, as you say, a popular award. And it is, uh, and right, it is run by its own committee, not by um, uh, the, the manufacturers the way that the Origins Awards are. Right. Because uh, if you've ever followed an argument over the Origins Awards involving its stakeholders, weirdly, uh, the arguments are often in favor of making the awards uh, uh, such that uh, the people arguing are more likely to win them. Uh, but here, of <laughs> course, we have a a jury structure and then a popular vote. And so they, uh, along with prestige, they mix the sense of uh, quality that the judges uh, see and also the uh, size and passion of the communities behind uh, various game companies and various games. And so are something of a bellwether about where things are going in terms of the, the broader taste of people who care enough about role-playing games in order to uh, go and uh, make a bunch of votes. And uh, this year, like last year, often there's a company that will sort of uh, dominate uh, the Ennies, maybe for a single sweep or maybe uh, for a couple of years. And uh, Chaosium, our pals at Chaosium, are, are riding high now because they had another uh, big year. They took home eight awards, including the uh, company fan favorite award, which uh, often goes to Wizards of the Coast. So... Uh, the stored up love for the newly revived Chaosium is clearly there and, uh, very strong. And not just for, uh, Cthulhu, our big tentacled, uh, brand name under the sea, but also, uh, RuneQuest, uh, uh, picked up some stuff as well. So, uh, that's exciting to see, uh, the, uh, love for those classic games, uh, still going stronger, maybe even stronger in 2019. Yeah. The, um, other, uh, fun thing about the Ennies is that they have sort of a uh, fun is maybe a strong word, but one of the interesting things about the Ennies is that the categories are often very fluid and missable and they seem to just sort of appear and disappear at random. Uh, and so for example, this year I noticed that all of the nominees, all of the very excellent nominees for best game were what we would have in the past called best story game or best indie game. But it seems to be that the judges decided this would be the category for smaller games or for indie games that aren't from big publishers. So you have Companions Tale, Dialect, Dream Askew, Dream Apart, uh, by Avery Alder, uh, Liminal, and Mothership. Uh, all of which are small, uh, uh, you know, one person operation or, or very, very, uh, very, very indie in the, in the old uh, fun sense of the word, uh, games. All of them are excellent, but you know, they're not being asked to compete against RuneQuest, for example, that uh, the judges in their wisdom have put like against like. And while it's an odd title for the category, when you see the list of nominees, it makes sense because maybe you could just say it's the best game that's completed in and of itself or whatever else. But it was nice to see that category exist, uh, even if, as I say, the, the naming conventions are a little weird. Yes. Previous years, it's been kind of like best picture at the Oscars. Right. Where... It's the the sort of the capstone to things that that have already been winning a bunch of awards, but uh, this time, as you suggest, they also uh, they went in another direction and focused on uh, a particular aesthetic. Uh, and you know, those games uh, could use the 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 attention, so that's great. Right. Um, another thing that uh, I want to talk about, though, is that uh, the Ennies are still a place where a 
company can appear on the scene, build a big groundswell for uh, their uh, games and products, and uh, also do extremely well. So uh, Free League picked up six awards, and that's a, a Swedish uh, company that uh, has a big and fervent uh, fan base, but not one you've heard a lot about before. So I think that's heartening as well, that it's not just uh, the uh, old favorites who began back in the before times, but uh, if you do an amazing job and, and rope in uh, a community of people who play and adore your games, uh, you can still score really well at the innings, and that will, uh, you know, people don't need to be told who Chaosium is, but there will be a lot more people looking at uh, Free League from now on. Another example of that uh, tendency of, of games to just burble up out of nowhere, and maybe even a better one, is Mothership, which won not just a silver for Mothership Dead Planet for Best Adventure, but it won um, uh, a gold. It won the gold for that best game category I talked about. Uh, it's by um, uh, Sean McCoy, and then that adventure was by uh, Fiona Geist and Sean McCoy doing the art, and it is a beautiful little game. I have very much admired it on the internets, and it's another example of a game that literally came out of, I think, one person's word processor and then sort of, uh, and uh, very much their, their, whatever their graphics program is, and then sort of captured a following and blew up and won an any. And it went it entirely based on that absolute iron core of quality that the game possesses because no one knew anything about, uh, about this game really before it, it dropped, I think, the very, very, very tail end of, of last year. And then, um, uh, has, has become a, a giant, uh, presence, I think, graphically at the, at any rate, um, in, uh, in, in the small game story game community. And there it is. And it, and it won. And last year, that same thing happened with, uh, Zweihander, uh, by Daniel Fox, uh, which again was a game that he built in his garage and released. And it hit a need of people to play Warhammer Fantasy First Edition only with a different name and, uh, modern typography. And, uh, it it exactly did. It fulfilled those conditions, and people loved it. And it swept to any victory on the wave. And there was tons of people in the industry looking at each other and saying, "What is this game?" And uh, and that was kind of a fun story as well. So it it does happen that you get in free league at least had product of the year. I think was last year's uh, was was their uh, tales from the loop. So or maybe that was two years ago. But but free league at least sort of bubbles had come up from the, from the, uh, from under the surface, but it was just nice to see it, Like you say, it's nice to see them be able to go from, you know, zero to 60 in in not very much time at all. And thanks. That's thanks to the popular nature, as you say, of the Ennis. You can do it. You listener at home with your own excellent, excellent game. You could be up there on the stage getting sweet any gold. The most unprecedented thing, though, is that Best Product was won by a radio drama. Yes, that is new. That is new for us. So this was the H.P. Lovecraft Historical uh, Society's lengthy uh, radio uh, drama adaptation of uh, Masks of Neralathotep. So uh, that's a huge example of something that both calls back uh, to something uh, beloved from the formative years of the hobby, but is also... uh, a new and category busting innovation of its own is that uh, the idea of an adaptation uh, into a more conventional dramatic form of something people are used to as a uh, role playing campaign. Uh, that's a brilliant idea. Uh, and uh, they uh, executed it well enough to win product of the year. So, yeah. And, and, and you wonder if that's maybe a harbinger of a season of a streaming series winning product of the year. 
uh, in some future time that, you know, season five of Critical Role is going to be up there or something like that. That raises the question of how, what constitutes a product, right? Because you yeah. can, you buy the radio drama as a, as a, as a, a box, as, as an audio file. And, and but I'm uh, sure you can, I mean, if, if the, if the Critical Role guys aren't selling DVDs or Blu-rays or whatever, of their, of their, uh, great, of their, of their moments, then I, I think they're missing a bet then, right? Wouldn't you like to be able to watch that in media form? Or maybe that's an idiotic question because the kids today just live on the YouTube forever. Yes. So I, I guess we should also, uh, speaking of uh, mobilizing, uh, one's, uh, community, uh, we have to thank our listeners, uh, because, uh, Ken and Robin, uh, talk about stuff won gold again this year. And so, uh, that, uh, is always a delight to be, uh, recognized in that way. And, uh, and we do it for you, uh, listeners, right. the special Patreon backers. We brought the gold back for you. Yes. Uh, although you don't get it. We will keep <laughs> the gold, but we brought it back for you. The act of bringing was for you. Yes. The, the gold is in your hearts. So right. get that checked out. It should be real shouldn't gold. gold in your that's heart. bad. That's bad news. Get it chelated. That's, it's not going to be good. Right. You gotta drink barium and stuff. Anyway, but that's not the point. The point is we're all very grateful, uh, for you guys, uh, voting for us. And I personally am very grateful for that subset or one hopes entire set of y'all that voted for me for best setting, uh, which, uh, fall of Delta Green won against an astonishing, uh, field, easily yes. the toughest field in the, in the entire uh, awards, I think. Well, one of us thought it was going to win gold, and it was not the recipient. And it was not the guy who got it. Uh, I I had written a very credible explanation for why all four of my competitors were going to be up there on the stage getting that gold medal. And uh, it turns out it was me, along, of course, with Kat Tobin, who shepherded that book to uh to to print and to availability and uh a couple of the guys from Arc Dream, Shane Ivey and uh, Dennis Stetwiller, Shane who greenlit the project and allowed us to go forward with it and basically offered it to me on a silver platter and Dennis who has been part of Delta Green since the very since Innsmouth, since the first raid and he's still his eyes blink no more than they ever did good for Dennis well this is all part of the important process of tempting them into extending the license to uh, more than one supplement. So absolutely, that'd be that nice. May, may have helped a bit with that. Yep. Uh, voters for Fall of Delta Green. Wear gold when talking to publishers. That's it's true in the music industry. It's true in this industry. Well, speaking of publishers, uh, let's talk about Pelgrane's Gen Con uh, after this exciting commercial message. The Best of Askfageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. 
And if you speak Swedish, not English. That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Askfageln on drive through Prevent this podcast from going to the great shoelas in the sky by joining forces with such Patreon supporters as... Mike Merles. Rich Ranallo. Ryan Mannix. Scott Stefanski. And Brian Thomas. So, uh, the experience of uh, uh, being a booth weasel uh, for a company is uh, heavily influenced by the uh, traffic at one's booth. And speaking of us and, and the Arc Dream slash Pagan Publishing gang, uh, we are both hoping to have the same setup that we've had other years because I think it helped us both a lot. Uh, previous years, Pelgrane has been stuck facing the blank mylar wall of the back of the upper deck booth which uh, means that uh, if you just have one of those big vinyl corridors, people zoom past it, even if there's a booth on one side of it. And so, uh, but if there's two exciting, uh, aesthetically compatible uh, game companies right across the aisle from each other, as there was this year, united by high-profile Ken Height projects, uh, people go back and forth and they stop and look at stuff and... Uh, also, we could uh, wave to our, our booth pals across the way. And I think that contributed in some measure to um, what was a, a pretty good year for uh, Palgrain. Uh, the new hotness, there's st- still lots of people picking up uh, Fall of Delta Green. This is its first Gen Con, and uh, especially after the award. I think we uh, moved a few more of those. Also, Hideous Creatures, your big compendium of uh, creatures for Trail of Cthulhu, uh, is also uh, v- very new, and it's the, it's the biggest Trail of Cthulhu book, and you've Filled it uh, with monsters that you've written about before for uh, the uh, Hideous Creatures Ken Writes About Stuff PDF, but you've filled it with all sorts of exciting new content. Uh, why don't you tell people about that? Hideous Creatures, for long-memoried uh, listeners, uh, goes back to my Ken Writes About Stuff series. Each uh, monster is presented or was presented in, in those with uh, not just their stats, but also possible variant powers that they might have, abilities, weird things, weaknesses and vulnerabilities sometimes, options for making them uh, generally tougher and more horrible, always making them stranger and more mysterious, ways to present them that are not the familiar way that everyone is bored with necessarily, and then parallels in world folklore and mythos explanations that are deliberately contradictory so that you can slot them into unexpected parts of your setting, and uh, a few scenario seeds, and lists of ways that they can trigger every single Trail of Cthulhu clue in the book, easily my most painfully uh, conceived idea uh, for that format. But those are then were then compiled uh, by Cat and extended by Gareth writer Hanrahan, who then wrote some more monsters, uh, along with Ruth Tillman and other fine creators. Uh, and also I was uh, bully-ragged back into writing up uh, The Night Gaunts, uh, for the compilation, and then Cat heroically, laboriously, and with great retroactive appreciation for when I've done it, indexed the book. So uh, that uh, massive tome is not uh, the complete every monster ever, but it is a deeper dive into any of the monsters than you've ever got, and all the monsters get it, including the monsters from my 
uh, Foul Conjuries series that were monsters that have never been given stats by other Cthulhu games and were given stats for the first time in that product. And those monsters each got a blowout to be as long and detailed and loved as uh, my original uh, bunch of, of beasts. And now the result is a bestiary that is, you know, probably uh, for the, there's something like uh, 33 monsters. So there's something like a hundred and, 25 scenario seeds in there by the end of the day, because I wrote a bunch, Gareth wrote a bunch, and then Dean Engelhart, prop master extraordinaire, uh, obviously wanted in half the forgeries in Australia, uh, produced lovely handouts, one for each monster that in themselves are another scenario seed. So it was a, a it's a glorious book. It's very fun. Uh, endless, endless amounts of play. So for listeners who are scratching their chins and going, what? There are Lovecraftian monsters who've never been given stats. What are uh, some examples? The uh, bloody tentacle coming out of his face monster from the Lovecraft fragment known as Thing in the Moonlight. Uh, the gaseous wraiths that are mentioned in passing in uh, Mountains of Madness, which I decided are the same as the creatures from Conan Doyle's uh, Horror of the Heights, one of the greatest horror stories ever written. And the black-winged ones that the cultists in the Cthulhu cult in Call of Cthulhu in Call of Cthulhu, there are monsters that were never given anything. The cultists say, oh, we didn't kill all those people. The black-winged ones kill those people. And I said, well, if you got black-winged things that go around killing people, that's pretty neat. Maybe they should have their own write-up. So that's what they got. Uh, there was a big uh, 13th Age campaign that was uh, uh, new for Gen Con, and that was uh, Shards of the Broken Sky, also largely by Gar with Rod Heinso. And even more Garific, the big new hot, Hotness at the show was Knight's Black Agent Solo Ops, which is Gar's adaptation of my gumshoe one-to-one rules to Knight's Black Agents. And uh, that was flying off the table. It was uh, an immediate sell both to people who already knew what Knight's Black Agent was and also uh, people who were new to the concept but excited by the idea of uh, doing that in a solo play format, which, of course, is the more common way of telling uh, spice thriller stories. So, uh, you know, Mission Impossible exists. There's certainly some uh, team-based spy thriller action things, but mostly that's uh, a a one-person thing. That's that's Bond or or Salt or uh, uh, Jason Bourne. So uh, it makes absolute sense to uh, to do it in that format. And I know uh, Gar had a real challenge on his hands. The one-to-one allows you to craft challenges so that they sort of constrain the possible ways the uh, scenario can go. It's not railroaded insofar as any challenge has three possible results, but it avoids the complete uh, heading off into a weirdo land that uh, you can sometimes uh, wind up with in a multiplayer format, but that's okay because in multiplayer, the GM has enough time to kind of think their way around that and, and then she can move things uh in front of the players that are still fun and exciting, but with the one-to-one, because you have only one uh, GM and one player, the GM is on stage around half the time, the player's on this stage that the other half, and there's not a lot of time to uh, improvise something uh, completely different. And uh, Gar found the challenge of that even greater with the spy thriller uh, than uh, with the noir detective, as uh, Chris Spivey and uh, Ruth Tillman and I uh, did with Kalu Confidential. So it's very exciting uh, to see uh, how uh, well that is uh, uh, doing at Gen Con, and I bet it's going to continue to do that well. Uh, now, things are very busy at the uh, Pelgrane booth, but uh, being busy uh, is uh, sometimes a 
double-edged pole arm, and I think it's time for the uh, annual discussion of is Gen Con getting too big or too expensive or too difficult to score our hotel rooms at? And uh, I think we are beginning to see a setup where Gen Con is not is still the biggest show. It is the one that, out of habit and inclination and history, that the big companies are still going to be oriented toward. But we're now hitting a point where other shows are beginning to crop up that are competing uh, with Gen Con for guests. And uh, as I uh, was looking for people to interview on our uh, the day before the show, and you'll be hearing interviews drop over the next uh, months, it became pretty apparent that uh, there's lots of folks who have big careers in gaming and we want to talk to them who don't go to Gen Con and it's not their thing anymore. Uh, big ba- Bad Con in particular has is making a very strong play for the uh, hearts uh, of the uh, indie scene and new generation. And there's already Metatopia uh, uh, attracting them as well. So uh, the idea that you have to go to Gen Con in order to be part of the scene is uh, kind of gone out the window. Even as it has continued to grow, there's that exhibit hall uh, is continuing to squeeze down the exhibitors who are not game companies and make room for more game companies. So it's not that they, they had record attendance. It's not that Gen Con is getting smaller, but that other shows are getting bigger in terms of their ability to attract uh, designers and uh, and attendees from uh, different groups. So uh, it's going to be very interesting to see in the next few years that kind of equilibrium in the game scene uh, come about. Of course, you know, San Diego Comic-Con is still the biggest now actually movie and TV with an asterisk and comics down near the bottom. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's still a big media convention in every market. And I think we're going to continue to see uh, that uh, grow. And, uh, unlike the comic scene, game people do not generally count on making enough in sales at uh, conventions in order to justify sending someone to every single convention. So the idea that you can hit one con and meet nearly everybody uh, is becoming less and less a, a factor every year. And I think that's overall to the good, and that's not even necessarily a reflection on Gen Con. Oh, I guess it kind of is, though, because the... Uh, the stress of attending a show this big with this many people with this much competition for hotel rooms. Uh, I can see why folks are, uh, who are looking at their wallets or just at how much uh, the show takes out of them uh, have a lot more choices now. And more yeah. choices is good. A single monopolistic convention would not be a good thing at all, but it's certainly uh, changing the idea that this is the show and everything else from origins on down is another regional show. Yeah, I mean the, the what what you're seeing is I think the intentional differentiation by other top tier shows in the sense of they attract a top tier of talent or they have a top tier experience in because they can't be Gen Con. No one can be Gen Con. Origins tried to be Gen Con for a while there and uh is now Origins and I think everyone is happier with with that situation. And it, and no one wants to, you know, try and build like a, a read pop quasi Gen Con somewhere. That's not going to work. So Gen Con is going to be Gen Con for, for the foreseeable. But what Sean does with Big Bad Con or what Avi does with Metatopia is say, all right, we can build a premier product that is the absolute best for this type of attendee and for this type of game company. And if you are a story game uh designer, going to Big Bad Con 
if you've only got money for one convention, going to Big Bad Con is absolutely the right call because you're going to meet obviously many thousands fewer people, but everyone you meet is going to be into your scene. Um, the fact that there are 70,000 people at Gen Con does you no good if you're releasing a story game that 69,500 of them aren't there to play or aren't even there to think about. So you, so you really, it makes sense to start prioritizing. I mean, for example, you know, Gary Con is just right up the road from me in Milwaukee. I could go there, you know, super cheaply. I could have a good time, but it does it make sense? Am I selling to people who are fondly trying to recreate in their hearts or tables the mold vase set? I don't think so. So I don't go to Gary Con as much fun as I'm sure it is uh, for the people who do go. It's just not my scene, and it doesn't make economic sense for me to do it. And I make these decisions just like everybody does. Substantially, uh, people in role-playing are either uh, freelancers who make a living at it, but there are very few of those. And in fact, uh, most people are in business, they're selling games, but they're not, uh, the, the number of people who are making enough money to make a living in role playing is still nowhere near it is, uh, in comics. And so the justification for hitting a whole bunch of shows is, is not there because it's still an expense. It still costs uh, them money. Maybe, you know, uh, in the future, we will get to the point where particular coveted designers, uh, start to make personal appearance fees the way that, uh, uh Gary Gygax was, uh, uh, in his uh, years before we lost him, but that isn't a, a thing anymore. And so the conventions have to really compete to draw people in. But one of the ways they're not yet competing is by making it affordable. And if you uh, are doing it for a living, uh, you can only do so many shows because eventually you will do the math on how much time you spend yeah. traveling and how much product productivity you, you lose to traveling. Um, now, uh, one thing that I think Big Ben Con really has going for it is that it is able to uh, project a focus on safety uh, that uh, I think Gen Con really has to grapple with. And since that's a, uh, a, a kind of a whole new topic, uh, let's uh, hit our last commercial for the show and then come back. Have you found the yellow sign? The King in Yellow, Robert W. Chambers' unearthly book, has inspired millions of readers since the death of the Gilded Age. A beautiful new edition from Arc Dream Publishing brings fresh potency to its stories of poisonous romance. This deluxe hardback features gold foil embossing and a leather cover in the black snakeskin pattern that Chambers described. A foreword by John Scott Tynes sets the stage. Annotations by Kenneth Height elucidate the secrets and histories of every tale. Samuel Araya's full-color plates and charcoal illustrations evoke the otherworldly weirdness of Carcosa. Every print order comes with the PDF digital edition. The annotated King in Yellow insinuates itself into our reality in July 2019. The ball begins. It is time to don your mask. Join the masquerade at shop.arcdream.com. So, uh, Gen Con has, uh, uh, had some harassment issues last year, and, uh, there were also, uh, and that unfortunately continued this year. Uh, one of my collaborators was, uh, confronted, uh, by, uh, the angry, frightening, uh, verbal assault and, uh, found that there was no one nearby to call on. It wasn't easy to get a hold of the staff. And I think that, uh, one 
uh, thing that Gen Con needs to do to step things up is more visible security everywhere. Gen Con needs bouncers that as the overall cultural atmosphere is more and more conducive to harassment, as there's more uh, bitterness between people and as some people are using uh, uh, harassment as a edge of the wedge of uh, extremist politics, that we have to wake up and realize that uh, if you look around a hall at Gen Con on the way to some seminars or some games and think of how many security people would be there at Disneyland, how many yeah. visible security people who are, you can reach out to to say, hey, something's happening. Because um, it doesn't, it's, it's all well and good to say, if you contact us, we will take action and throw that person out of the show this year and in perpetuity. But that doesn't help you if someone is coming at you near an escalator and there's no one around uh, to help you. If I, I'm thinking of Fan Expo, there's tons of security people labeled as such. And uh, some of them are obviously kind of volunteer types. So you would not necessarily expect to be able to uh, intervene as, uh, you know, in general in life, when you look at security yards, some of them give you confidence uh, that they'd be able to intervene and others not. But uh, if you look at a big multi-track show like uh, Fan Expo here in Toronto, there's security people everywhere. And the reason, I think probably part of that reason is that years ago, Gen Con decided to eschew the celebrity guests, media celebrities. It didn't have them. But when you have media celebrities, they have very specific demands for personal security uh, right. and traffic flow because they're not there to be endangered. And that's something they have to think about all the time. And it's not something that we as gamers are uh, accustomed to think about, but that's overdue. Um, and that's, that's expensive. Uh, but it's got to be done. I mean, we're, you know, we've democratized everything else in culture. Now we're democratizing stalking and harassment. Um, that, uh, that ordinary people can, can suffer it, uh, just based on, on, on being near a, a, a creep or people who are just have uh, nano fame levels. They wrote something that gets up someone's nose and here it, here it is. It's a confrontation and it's a scene. Was there even a thing on the app? I, I know I didn't look and I'm certainly not going to now. Was there even a thing on the app where you could punch it and, and send a message that says security or is that not a thing? I, I, it seems to me that should be a thing even, even between now and whenever they, you know, can uh, ramp up to fan expo levels and they should be ramping up to better levels already. I mean, Gen Con already lost Contessa over this issue. Uh, they were the numbers, numerous Contessa GMs were harassed and groped at the show. Stacey Dolorfano of Contessa rightly objected to this, felt the response they got from Gen Con was inadequate and pulled Contessa. And now Contessa is doing those regional shows that we talked about that are competing with Gen Con. And if one of the things you're competing on is we won't let people gro grope you, that seems like a really good thing to have on the top line of your of your one pager, right? Or, or, or terrorize you, right? Yeah, because there's more than one kind of harassment, and no, absolutely, and yeah. both of those things uh, need uh, fast action, and they need fast action from someone physically convincing. Mm -hmm. You don't, you can't rely on on a passing thing on, on yeah, on, on bystanders to step in. Uh, that's that's something that they uh, really have to step up because uh, we're in we're in grown up world now. Uh, but a lot of the uh, sort of assumptions and, and traditions of the show are just, uh, you know, it's all one big happy family and we're all flowing everywhere and everything's uh, great, but uh, everything's not great. And uh, even if it costs more, uh, which again creates its own set of problems, because if the 
you know, real security is going to cost real money, and that uh, would require badges to go up. And the very sorts of people who are most apt to be harassed are often the sorts of people who really have to count their pennies when they decide to come to a show like this. And if we're trying to uh, accommodate the desire to make gaming more accessible to everybody, uh, we, uh, especially, uh, you know, those of us who are uh, not used to thinking about this have to get used to thinking of it because uh, it's just, uh, it's not right to expect uh, people to ask themselves, will I be terrorized when I go to this yeah. convention? Do I have to be afraid of what I'm going to say at a panel? Uh, or, you know, am I going to be confronted with someone that I've been uh, feuding with on the internet? We've got a, and by we, I mean Gen Con, uh, yeah. I, we as a hobby have to make this more of an expectation of shows like Gen Con, but also, right. you know, it's Gen Con that has to uh, revisit, I think, its whole approach to security because how many times are you going to go to Gen Con and be uh, uh, creeped on or uh, implicitly or explicitly threatened and still consider it a fun thing that's worth your time? Well, you, you're not going to save your pennies for that. You're no. going to save it for uh, a different show. Yeah. Um, and there are certainly shows like Breakout here in Toronto and uh, Big Bad Con that uh, do prioritize that. And part of the way they are able to do that is by being small. But because Gen Con's brand is its bigness, I think... It doesn't have that option. Yeah, it's got to uh, have a big solution. So, on uh, a final note, uh, people uh, do always ask us about food in Indianapolis. And our response is often... Well, hollow laughter. <laughs> um, uh, Indianapolis, of course, is the, uh, the the big box capital of uh, of the world, uh, and uh, but there's still some things uh, sneaking around the edges. And uh, of course, this is always a statement against self interest because if you uh, want to find a good place to eat and get a table there, we we love you so much, listeners, that we are willing to tip you to some things and. Uh, and hopefully uh, this won't cost us tables at the next place. So one bit of advice that I would give is that I had big success when being turned away at a particular place because the wait was too long. I was uh, with uh, uh, Jason Dural of uh, Chaosium, for example, and oh, the place we usually go, it's half an hour wait. We don't have much, that much time. Let's find somewhere else. And uh, Open Table uh, is a, a great app that has a location service. So you can just pull it up and wherever you are, it will tell you all of the restaurants nearby, and well, not all of them, but a, a number of restaurants nearby that have open tables and when they're available, and you can just hit that button and head on over, and, and perhaps by the time you're there, a table is waiting for you. So, uh, folks, don't if you're able to do this, this is a good trick. Often at a convention, you're sort of a amorphous mass of people that sort of accrete together, and uh, you wind up suddenly with a table for 14, and that's one that's hard to accommodate on a moment's notice, but if there's a small number of you, uh, you can grab a, a table at a, a pretty cool place uh, pretty quickly. And the one that I wound up picking that I uh, kind of vaguely knew about but wouldn't have gone to without the app was Spoken Steel, which is the restaurant in the Le Meridian Hotel. It's a boutique hotel, uh, a higher-end restaurant. Uh, so uh, uh, if you're counting pennies, maybe not a choice, but if you want a real... Uh, non-chain restaurant experience with a, a chef and some extremely tasty uh, food, uh, I would go there. I had the uh, uh, the duck with cauliflower rice, and they have an incredibly decadent, uh, or did at the time, uh, incredibly decadent croissant bread pudding, uh, 
uh, that I would wow. uh, highly recommend. <laughs> that's that's when you're worried your bread pudding didn't have enough butter in it exactly. yet. Exactly. So if you uh, are uh, at the end of the day and uh, uh, need a giant calorie infusion, uh, that, that is a pretty darn uh, delicious one. Uh, uh, Ken, what uh, food did you find in India this year? Well, I got in earlier than you because uh, Air Canada buffaloed you with their uh, weird new website and their uh, general atmosphere of uh, socialism, I'm sure. Oh, it, it was capitalism. It was capitalism? <laughs> All right. Well, I'm glad to know that you were buffaloed by capitalism. That makes me feel better about the buffaloing. But anyway, normally Robin gets in at the same time or roughly the same time that I do, and he and I go somewhere uh, and have a good time and mock uh, everyone has to fly across the Atlantic. And that is our, our beautiful tradition. And this year, um, that didn't happen because one of the Atlanticists, young Simon Rogers, co-owner of Pelgrain, landed early. And so he and I went with my pal Zachary, who had driven me up from Chicago, purely out of the goodness of his own heart. And well, his- a couple of people mistook Simon for uh, for me. And I guess that was because he was covered in barbecue sauce, where that's normally my role. He was covered in barbecue sauce because Zach drove me down to Barbecue Heaven, which has been, uh, according to its sign, the finest barbecue in the world since 1952. I am not necessarily sure it is the finest barbecue in Indiana, but it was excellent barbecue. Um, I have had uh, barbecue better than that in Chicago, and I've had barbecue that good in Indianapolis. But Indianapolis has got a surprising bench when it comes to barbecue. And you look at Indianapolis and you think there is no way this would be like getting barbecue in Canada. Why would you do that? But apparently there is a subterranean ring of barbecue restaurants. You just have to know the secret words for. We ate at Squealers many years ago and it was terrific. And this year we went to barbecue heaven. Uh, if it hadn't rained, we could have eaten sumptuously out on the porch as it was. It's basically just takeaway. If it, um, uh, if, if you don't, can't use the porch, but we took it away and we had delicious rib tips and it was a, a, a blast of, of good fun. Uh, another restaurant that, uh, is within Walking distance of the con center, though not in the tight circle that will get you back to your next game event right afterwards, uh, is Axum, which is an Ethiopian Eritrean place. Uh, we usually go hit one every year at our, uh, as part of the Pelgrane crew because we have vegetarians on board. Uh, the one we usually go to uh, near the airport hotels, uh, was out for renovation this year. And, uh, this was, uh, uh, not the, my favorite Ethiopian place I've ever been to, but it's an Ethiopian place within walking distance of the convention center, therefore noteworthy. Yes, and beggars can't be choosers. <laughs> and also the floor on Ethiopian food, we should uh, remind our listeners, is much higher than the floor on most other food. Yes. It, I've had the worst Ethiopian food I've ever had is B+. plus. Exactly. I would say. And and this, this <laughs> had some uh, uh, innovations I haven't seen before, like uh, beets yeah. were on the... On the uh, vegetarian platter, so uh, so that was uh, interesting. Uh, if, if you're looking for something very fulling and a, a little different, especially uh, if you have uh, uh, folks who are who need vegetables to have been tricked into being delicious, uh, Axum is your uh, way to go. Uh, now, can we also realize one time when we were headed out to dinner? That a member of our party had a car. Yeah. And so th- this res- uh, this next choice uh, is uh, recommended in part because it is far away from the convention center and it has a particularly uh, paradisical ambiance. You want to uh, go into this, Ken? Yeah. Um, this was uh, the Inferno Room, which, when we examined it briefly, just promised us Filipino and Asian fusion cuisine. And we thought that sounds nice. Or Asian Pacific fusion cuisine. We thought that sounds nice. And as we got there, we realized we are going to a tiki joint. This is a tiki bar. And sure enough, it was complete with uh, lowering um, uh, uh, sacred masks 
and cool lighting and uh, blowfish with candles in them and the whole nine yards and uh, tiki drinks, including tiki drinks on the back that were pirated from other tiki bars, but they listed the sources. And as I'm looking down that list of six drinks, I realized I'd been in two of those tiki bars. And Robin, I'm afraid I'm one of those people now. I'm now a tiki bar people. <laughs> well, we we do have the shirts already, so yes. No, I. You, you can certainly see it before. Well, he's an alcoholic and he wears colorful shirts. Maybe he's a tiki bar person. And that's cruel of you. I'm a lush. I'm not an alcoholic. Good lord. Unseen interlocutor. Screw you. Yeah. That's not a nice thing to yeah. say about my friend Ken. Uh, now, that's harsh. Um, the surprising thing, though, was not that they have. Uh, delicious fruity drinks. That's uh, uh, that's what a tiki bar is all about. But their spam themed food was also uh, and and there isn't spam in every food, but uh, in yeah. every dish. But uh, there's it's in more dishes than most mine, restaurants. Uh, yeah. Which was the I had the loco moco, which was uh, a really amazing um, meatloaf with uh, some spam and some gravy and some rice and uh, another high impact, certainly high calorie food, uh, but uh, also uh, extremely delicious. And I had the pork lao lao, which is all manner of salty, herby pork served over rice. And when you're laying down a bed of uh, strong carbs for your Gen Con absorbing experience, uh, the pork lao lao was great. I think Robin got the better dish, but I can recommend the pork lao lao unconditionally uh, at the Inferno Room. And uh, also, everyone was very nice there. The the uh, it had that good uh, tiki vibe, partially thanks to being far enough from the convention center that it wasn't slammed. But I think that uh, they're just good people there at the Inferno Room, and they deserve all of your love and uh, much of your money. Right. Although, uh, you know, go in small groups. Yeah. Yeah. Don't don't drag ten people. There's there isn't a table for ten people in physically in the in the restaurant. No, there's cozy so. little booths. So that's a right. Uh, that's the place to go to when you ha- uh, know someone with a car and have a small group where you want to have a table where right. you can yes. relax. Yeah, know someone with a small car yeah. is the best possible so- situation. Exactly. Uh, I have it on good authority though. Did not go myself that the elevated Mexican place called Nada, which is nearby the convention center, was also quite good. And uh, you have another uh, restaurant name here and. Uh, appropriate, I guess, for a role-playing convention. You went to Bluebeard? Yes, I did. Uh, Bluebeard was, um, <laughs> someone said that it was a Kurt Vonnegut-themed restaurant. Uh, that is not the case, although, uh, <laughs> uh, right. Hal, it's, uh it's, it's actually just a, a generic meme that someone is attributing to Kurt Vonnegut. Right. It's a, it's a, it's a 20th century literature themed restaurant, but Hal Mangold and I, uh, had a good time on the way there, uh, thinking, oh, oh I'm, I'm Chet. I'll be your waiter. Do you want uh, sparkling or still? Uh, can I have ice? No, you can't have ice and destroy the world. <laughs> this is the, so it goes platter. You just eat it forever. Time loops around. You get the appetizers again. We had, we had good fun, but we got there and it turned out to be a new American, uh, place like many, many other new American places, but they have the same sort of Midwestern, uh, generosity in, in plate and sizes. And, uh, one of the biggest, uh, for a charcuterie board, uh, biggest, cheapest, best charcuterie boards I've, I've had pretty much anywhere. Uh, it's, um, all sort of locally sourced. So it's, it's farm to table type, uh, experience. We did not ask how they locally sourced the oysters. We just didn't order them. <laughs> Although, if they have a big oyster tank somewhere in Indiana, I'd like to go visit it. But they did have a lot of... Um, they locally uh, sourced them from the airport, Ken. That's, that's right. Yeah, from are. Indianapolis Airport. That's local. Yeah. Um, so they, they had a, a lot of very nice... Like I said, the charcuterie was good. They had Indiana ciders, uh, which were, were quite excellent. Um, uh, I had the skirt steak, which was much more interesting than the word skirt steak implies. Uh, Hal proclaimed himself very satisfied with 
what was basically the dark half of a chicken, um, but was uh, gussied up so nicely. Uh, and we had uh, made such pigs out of ourselves on the, on the charcuterie that he could barely finish it. And then I ordered a side of Brussels sprouts that were in agua dulce with 8 million shallots. They basically, they really wanted me to eat those Brussels sprouts. And when it came, it was, I don't know, a bowl the size of your head of Brussels sprouts. So it was obviously supposed to be Brussels sprouts for the table. It turned out to be Brussels sprouts for the table and for the prophet Elijah, who did not show up to eat his share. Um, but uh, they were really good. I mean, short of Brussels sprouts picked from my friend's mom's garden that day and roasted, these were the best Brussels sprouts I've ever had. And I, um, uh, and I do not praise Brussels sprouts ill-advisedly because they'll get you. But the Bluebeard was terrific. It's a... Uh, the chef is James Beard nominated, and it definitely shows. And the drinks, uh, the, the the cocktail menu is fun and interesting. Um, they have all manner of, of things that they're playing with. There was one that was, what was the drink called? It was like Amaro and Amaro and Amaro. Um, and it was, of course, an Amaro thing beverage, so I stayed far away from it. But it seemed like it was... Everyone else was enjoying it very much. So it was a, it was a good, it was a good time. But they did warn you three times. Um, and where is this in uh, relation to the con center? It's, it's, it's a goodish drive away. It's not, um, super far, but it's, uh, uh but it's a drive you, you want to, you want to get a lift or, or whatever higher car hire service yes. you prefer. A, a lift from a friend or a lift with a Y. Um, and so exactly. uh, finally, uh, Ken, something that, I think probably people will not expect is that uh, by the end of a show and we're uh, at the booth uh, waiting to sign your uh, lovely books, people, we sometimes we get punchy. And we, do. Uh, we discovered, uh, you discovered uh, in particular, that uh, Ken Burns' Civil War has uh, something sort of unusual about it, which is that although, of course, they have voices from both the North and the South, that everybody sounds kind of Southern and old-timey. And, uh, and Ken... What would it have sounded like if uh, there had been people from Chicago writing home about their experiences in the Civil War? Well, Robin, it might have gone something like this. Dearest Martha, today once more we face the Confederate rebels. Our morale is good, our supplies of ammunition are strong, and we believe that General Sheridan can get the job done. But Johnny Reb is a tough fighter, and he will hold out in these woods until we chase him out. All my love to you and to the kids, your husband, Lieutenant Frank Martin. Now, uh, we, we talked about the Ennies earlier, and uh, the, the final thing that I want to say, uh, because uh, we're saving it to the end of the podcast as an exciting announcement, not because we forgot to say it during our no, Ennies segment. No, not at we're, all. We're not just, weren't just punchy when we are doing the Ken Bernstick and, and punchy now. No, no, that couldn't be it. But uh, Ken, guess who's going to be hosting the Ennies uh, next year? I could not begin to guess, Robin, mostly because I already know. It's you and me. Yay! Uh, yes. So uh, Mark Morrison did a fabulous job uh, this year of keeping things uh, um, moving along and, and exuding his comforting Australian calm. <laughs> Next year, it was decided that uh, something kooky had to happen because it's going to be the 20th anniversary. And so the kooky thing is that uh, you and I, Ken, will be uh, emceeing the show. This will require us to look more carefully at the rest of our schedule in order to uh, husband our mental resources some. So we may have uh, one or two fewer panels. Uh, we may even try to get a little bit more sleep. Uh, but uh, I'm very much looking forward to uh, next year's Gen Con and the 20th Anniversary Any Awards. Yes, and I have already called dibs on being James Franco, so you have to be Anne Hathaway. A, a thing where I do all the work and you just sort of mope along? I can't imagine, Ken. Yeah. 
That's, you know, it's just, it's a, it's as though it were meant to be in foreshadowed literally in the stars. <laughs> well, uh, once the foreshadowing has been uh, revealed, uh, we've introduced narrative beats. So we've covered all of our bases, food, narrative beats, awards, and it's time for us to uh, head on out. Uh, next week, we'll be dropping the uh, the episode that we recorded uh, live at Gen Con. So uh, get ready for yet another uh, spiral back into time uh, one mere week from today. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Prolet Grain Press. Astagown. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Raise your tiki mug to podcast preservation alongside such Patreon backers as... Aryan Potsma. Brendan Cloherty. Brian Malcolm. Drew Eichholz. And Daniel Markwig. Festoon yourself with Ken and Robin merch at tpublics.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Check out our latest design, Polyp Fiction. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, and once again... We will talk about stuff.